Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Dave Aran about the history of the networking team at DEC, including ISIS. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Hello, Dave, and uh, let's see, you're older than DECnet Labs. What does that say? Uh, well, um, I was one of the original members of the DECnet group, which was in 1978. Um, so I've been doing this stuff for a very long time. A very, very long time. Yes. yes. I, rode that, uh, I rode that group all the way up and uh, most of the way back down. And most of the way back down. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. As long as there's no tree branches on the way down, right? Well, I got out before the whole thing fell apart. So, <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's good. I can see the handwriting on the wall, so to speak. Yeah, so why don't we back up and talk about the DECnet Lab stuff and how it played a role in the origin of networking. And I know ISIS was in there and radio was there and other people were there. So um, how about we back up and talk about that a little bit and just, uh, you know, recount your memories of being at DECnet. So, um, so people who were around in the late 70s will remember there was kind of a zoo of um, competing protocols and architectures uh, for how to do networking. There was SNA from IBM. Uh, there was DECnet from DEC. There was IPX from, Net, from NetWare. There was POP from Xerox. Um, and somewhere wandering around um, in a few government labs was this thing called um, NCP uh, and IP, which later turned into TCP IP. Um, so anybody working in those days really sort of had to choose their poison. Um, and uh, DEC was a pretty strong force in networking uh, at that time, partly because of its uh, dominance in uh, scientific and engineering communities, which were early adopters of, of networking technology, um, and partly uh, because um, DEC is a just general force in the industry uh, at that time was, you know, sort of cr- sort of climbing up to try and challenge IBM. So our main focus back then was t- trying to innovate in uh, a bunch of areas uh, that were not currently dominated by the terminal-oriented uh, hub-and-spoke architectures like SNA that IBM was pushing. So at that time, um, we had quite an interesting a galley of folks that we had uh, accumulated uh, by recruitment from from various places uh, and hired internally, and it was quite a quite an amazing team. So if you think about who was there at that time, um, we hired Radio Perlman and, and Ross Callen from BBNN, both extremely well known folks. Uh, we had Alan Kirby, who was uh, the inventor, one of the inventors of FBDI. We had um, Paul Koning, who went on to do interesting work in uh, wireless networks. Basically, we had just a very large, uh, not a very large group, but a very sort of productive group uh, doing, doing interesting stuff. So you mentioned ISIS. We had a distance vector style routing protocol for, for DECnet in the early days. It wasn't uh, very hard to do in the sense that uh, DECnet had 16-bit node addresses, 
and hence you couldn't have a network bigger than you know a few thousand nodes. Uh, as a matter of fact, anybody at DEC would have been ecstatic if somebody had built a network with 256 nodes in it. And uh, we we had this distance vector protocol that uh, had the st- sort of the standard problems that people understood in those days. It had council infinity problems. It had various uh, transient looping problems uh, and, and other things. So we were looking to, uh, when we designed the next phase of DECnet, which was called DECnet Phase 5 in the early 1980s, find a different way to do routing. And we looked at the early ARPA network uh, which had this distant, which had this link state protocol that uh, didn't actually work very well, but had hello protocol. very interesting characteristics. Pardon? The hello protocol, I think it was called, or something like that, right? Uh, no, it was, I don't, you know, it was based on, on, on John McQuillan's PhD thesis. That's all I'd ever yeah, Right, uh, yeah. So at any rate, we, we decided that link state was definitely the way to go. Um, and Radia really tackled that problem with Gusto in the early days. Um, and the design of ISIS, which sort of started from McQuillan's work but diverged quite uh, significantly from it, was, uh, oh, you know, almost all the really cool ideas were Radias in there. Uh, but the rest of the team, you know, helped out in, in various ways. So uh, something that might be interesting for the historical record is that uh, my technical contributions to that protocol are um, some of the more minor ones in terms of link initialization and packet formats and uh, point-to-point link protocols and, and some of those things. But the really key ideas there uh, pretty much all came from from radio, although, again, the team, team contributed a lot. So uh, some of the interesting things that got done uh, back then – sort of like want to go into some technical meat here, where first of all, um, the sequence number space that was in the original ARPANET protocols had this really peculiar failure mode, uh, was at one point called the Easter problem, where uh, if you had a, a particular kind of hardware failure, you could get three link state packets in the network all at the same time, each, of one, each one of which was greater than the other. And the protocol would uh, would go into exponential meltdown. And this this actually happened. Uh, the interesting reason that happened in the real world was that um, the hardware that was running the imps on the ARPANET in those days were Honeywell five sixteen computers, and they had this really bad hardware feature, which was the memory was simple parity memory. It wasn't ECC memory. People generally didn't do ECC in those days, came came later. And if you got a parity error, um, the way the machine would deal with the parity errors, it would freeze, it would just stop. And it would stop in such a way that it could not even be remotely rebooted. So this was a really bad idea, um, a bad situation for something like the ARPANET where if the network just sort of stopped, somebody would have to, you know, get out of bed and run into the office and, and physically reboot the computers. So they did the uh, they did the only thing that might have been worse than that, which was they turned off parity checking in the memory. And uh, when they did that, of course, there was a memory error which caused a bit flip in the sequence number field of the link state packet in one of the memory of one of the Honeywell computers, and this caused the this caused the network to melt down. 
So there, there are a number of lessons from that, uh, some of which have to do with the design of hardware, some of which have to do with the um, design of remote diagnosis, and some of which have to do with the design of protocols. But Did we, it happen often? Pardon? Did it happen often, the bit, bit flip in memory? Uh, well, it, yeah, well, you know, parity errors in memory happens, you know, maybe one a few weeks, one a month per machine. But usually it would, it would you know, if it, if it uh, corrupted some piece of data, um, it may not have been a significantly important piece of data from, from the point of view of control protocols, right? It might have been something else that was caught in a file and had, you had a corrupted file or, you know, various things like that. Uh, of course, when you these were communication computers, so they didn't have file systems particularly. So, yeah, yeah, there were packet disruptions and things like that. But at any rate, it only actually melted down once, and then uh, they decided to uh, turn parity checking back on and just made sure somebody was around all the time to reboot the machine. Just, just once, just took yeah. once, just took once to do that. <laughs> so at any rate, one of the interesting innovations that sort of went through multiple cycles was we tried to design a sequence space um, that was not amenable to this triple point problem of modulo arithmetic. So the first shot at that was one of the cleverest things I'd ever seen, Radia designed this, which was instead of using a circular sequence space, she designed this lollipop sequence space, which was um, every time the machine booted um, or, the, or you restarted the routing protocol, the, the emitted routing messages would all have these negative sequence numbers and they would climb up negative until it saw a sequence number from the circular space, and then it would jump into the correct part of the sequence space. So at any point, if the, if the routing got confused, it would just sort of drop everything and go back into this, this stick of the lollipop. And that, that would have worked okay. Um, what we ultimately decided was that uh, people wouldn't implement it right. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and hence it was kind of tricky to implement, right? So we kept thinking. And then uh, a few months later, uh, I, I think it was one of the other people in the group came in and said, you know, what if we just use a big sequence space such that the numbers never wrap? And somebody said, oh, man, we want these things to run for a while. We, you know, they're going to run for a while. And they said, well, let's just, you know, let's, let's just figure out what it is. So we counted it up and we figured out that with, with a 32-bit sequence space and a, and a little SP every second, the thing would run for 10 years. And that was, we didn't, we thought, you know, if you had to shut your routing down on a node once every 10 years, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> so we switched to a linear sequence space and um, that was great. Uh, and then when we went to sort of standardize it, they said, well, what if something does want to run for 10 years, right? What if it's in a nuclear power plant and it's, potentially in the radiation damage part. So we also added an age parameter so that LSPs would also time out based on age. So we had two independent me mechanisms to purge old data from the, from the routing protocol um, that were independent of each other. So they didn't have any couple failure modes. So that was kind of uh, an interesting innovation in ISIS. Uh, there were a bunch of others. The, the other sort of big one was the way we did um, designated routers, or were called pseudo nodes, on on LAN topologies. Um, if you did it sort of like the naive uh, link state uh, algorithms on a on an Ethernet, um, you'd have order n squared routing messages because every pair of routers would exchange routing messages, and then you'd have order n squared messages going around. So the the way you would 
reduce the topology from an order n squared topology to an order n topology is you'd sort of like elect one node to pretend to be the center of a star topology. So you, you now have uh, messages all going back and forth to that router. And of course, in order to do that um, robustly, you had to have a deterministic algorithm for electing that router and dealing with um, things that, that would cause that router to crash. And then you'd have to elect another one. So um, we designed a, a, um, a very clever um, election protocol uh, that was robust against non-transitivity, meaning if your if your Ethernet broke in a way that not all the nodes could talk to other all the other nodes, um, the election algorithm would actually be able to detect non-transitivity on the Ethernet and not by mistake elect two designated routers. Um, I'll point out that the, this was kind of a a lot better than what OSPF did where they just punted and they said, oh, we'll configure the designated router and we'll, we'll have a backup designated router and you had to put this in the configuration. Yeah, so, right. yeah. yeah. It's um, a bit of a mess, actually, the way OSPF, and OSPF still has that today. Um, yeah, they still have that today. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the, the, the bottom line here is that it's a couple of things to, to sort of summarize is that there were a number of real innovations in ISIS um, that, uh, went beyond what anybody had done uh, prior in link state routing and also sort of uh, made it more uh, robust than some of the alternatives like OSPF. Um, and second, um, uh, just to make sure to, to sort of nail things, my name is associated with the spec because I was the editor and I you know, actually wrote most of the words in the spec uh, for ISO and later for, for, for ITF. Uh, but you know the the ideas in the spec are are you know maybe eighty ninety percent radius and maybe ten percent the rest of us in the group. So she you know just shout out that you know if you think about the the technical content of ISIS, uh, radius name is the one that should be most associated with the ideas there. Oh, so so how did you end up being the editor? Um, I could, well, I have a degree in English literature as well as physics, so I knew how to write. And back in those days, I won't say anything about how things are now, but back in those days, a lot of the people associated with the industry um, couldn't write at all. Uh, so finding somebody who could write credible and understandable English was a skill that was actually uh, somewhat rare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it still is. <laughs> could be. Could be. Who knows? Um, at any rate, so that was only one of a number of really cool things that was done in that group over the years, uh, just so, you know, to sort of like round it out. Uh, uh, land bridging was invented in, in that group, also uh, with radius uh, footprints all over it. Um, so we built the first local area network bridge based on spanning tree. Um, and uh, we built the first FDDI switch. FDDI wound up not taking over the world, but we learned people learned a whole lot about how to build high-speed uh, network switches uh, out of that effort. It resulted, as a matter of fact, in something called tag switching, which later uh, turned into MPLS. So that group at DEC wound up with all the primary patents on, on MPLS, which is another little sort of factoid that isn't widely known around the industry. 
That's that's really actually interesting too. That uh, tag switching. I didn't realize tag switching went back to that to that group. Yeah. Well, we were designing this FDDI switch called the Giga Switch. It was the first thing with uh, hundred megabit links, uh, then aggregated into a uh, into a, a, a gigabit link, uh, which was, gigabit was really hard to do back in the early eighties. And the problem was is is the way the FDDI worked. Every packet that you wanted to switch would have to go through the switch fabric twice because it would come in on one ring, go through the switch fabric, go to the other ring, and have to go back through the switch fabric. So we had to, we tried to figure out a way to, to so that the packets didn't have to trombone through the switch fabric twice. So we put a, a tag on the front of the packet when it came in that said where it came in from so you could shortcut to the output on the, on the, on the switch once you set up the... Uh, once you set up the path. So yeah, we did, we switched on the tags rather than the addresses once we had the state set up. Wow. That's really cool actually. Yeah. So um, a little, you know, a couple of interesting things back there may be interesting. So who else was in that team that was, I mean, we talked about radio, but there was, was there somebody, I mean, um, I think you gave a few other names, but. Well, there, there was, there's a bunch of people. So the other sort of uh, ones that probably are remembered well in the community uh, because they in, basically invented uh, what turned into ECN, or, or first called the deck bit, was the, the sort of first real serious attempt at non, how can I put it, non-loss-based uh, congestion control for the Internet. And that was uh, Daming Chu, K.K. Ramakrishnan, and Jot Raj Jain, all of whom went on to storied careers in, in other places. Uh, K.K. worked at AT&T for many years, is now a prof at uh, UC Riverside, Raj Jain, of course, had sort of wrote the book on network performance analysis um, over a number of years and uh, is now at, the, at WashU in, where's WashU? Uh, St. Louis. Uh, and Daming Chu went on to do sort of fundamental work in network coding um, at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. He recently retired. So, that, yeah, there's, there's a, a whole bunch of people who are well-known around the around the industry. Uh, I also mentioned Ross, who joined the group uh, a couple of years after Radia. And of course, he's responsible for the uh, multi-protocol ISIS um, and making it carry IP traffic. That's one of the reasons why it was it wound up being the most popular IGP uh, in the internet is because of Ross's work to make it carry not just OSI style addresses when it was first designed, but IP as well. And of course, it logically extended IPv6 without any, you know, serious uh, disruption. Unlike OSPF, which basically had parts of it had to be completely redone for IPv6. Um, uh, well, most of it, I think. Yeah. I mean, or they just took the opportunity to redo a lot of stuff, which still has left the world of IP in a bit of a tangle for many, many years. Yeah. Um, in that, in that regard, as far as OSPF goes. And then sort of to sort of um, give people another lesson maybe that they can learn from all this is that the reason why ISIS was so successful, particularly in the carrier community compared to OSPF, had nothing to do really with the protocol being any better. It had to do with the fact that uh, Cisco put the A team on ISIS and the B team on OSPF. So the implementation on Cisco routers of ISIS was far superior uh, to the OSPF implementation. 
Um, I won't mention any names, but the folks who did the OSPF implementation later left Cisco and went to 3Com and screwed up their OSPF implementation too. <laughs> this was part of the reason why 3Com didn't, um, one, one reason among many why 3Com is no longer around at all, let alone in the router business. So yeah, if you don't have a good implementation team, make sure that they get hired by your competitors, I guess. <laughs> Which is which is interesting because we often think you know it's Betamax versus uh, or Beta versus um, uh, VHS, and we make it into this big thing, and we try to want to make it all about the features and all this other stuff. And in reality, a lot of times it just comes down to, hey, the implementation just wasn't honestly all that good. In right. The very right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A good implementation of a mediocre architecture will, I think, always win over a bad implementation of a brilliant architecture. Right, exactly, exactly. Many, many times, Deck uh, uh, sometimes didn't um, didn't follow that dictum, but Cisco certainly did, and I think it had a lot to do with the relative success of the two organizations in networking. Interesting, yeah. So Deck eventually fell out of networking over some period of time. Well, well, uh, the number of things happened. Most of them weren't related to. The, technical quality of what was coming out of various groups. I think it had mostly to do with two things. One was uh, DEC decided that IBM and SNA were the threat and spent 80 to 90% of the effort targeting IBM. And, and this thing called TCP IP sort of like came around from left field. Um, the second thing that happened is... Um, uh, DEC screwed up workstations. Um, and if people remember those days, uh, TCP IP was the, net, the, the way you did networking on workstations. Right. So by not having a credible workstation offering, there wasn't much motivation to have the best networking on workstations. Uh, and, and that contributed. And then the third thing was that uh, networking was not viewed by DEC as a business in and of itself. It was viewed as a way to sell vaxes. Um, so it went up and down with the, uh, with the history of, of the success and later lack of success of, of vax computers. Um, so, so I think a lot of those things came into play um, in terms of, of things not going as well as possible. And frankly, um, you know, Cisco executed really, really well. Uh, my last project at DEC was um, we built, most people wouldn't remember this, we built, I think, maybe the first, if it wasn't the first, it was either the first or the second commercial wireless access point. Oh, wow. So Roamabout uh, used 900 megahertz radio technology from NCR, ran DECnet. But the, the reason I bring it up is that the, uh, we took a risk, and we used a new chip from Motorola called the 68360. Do you remember that chip? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. So it was the first system on a chip that had built-in Ethernet. But Motorola screwed up the implementation pretty badly, and the Ethernet uh, parts of the chip didn't work very well. So DEC uh, spent a lot of effort helping Motorola get that to work. I think we even sort of like helped with wireless and, um, and testing of, of, um, of spins of the chip. What we didn't know at the time 
was that um, Motorola had sold that chip to Cisco for the 2500 router series. So DEC wound up debugging the main system on a chip and the networking part of it uh, for Cisco. For a competitor, essentially. Yeah, yeah, we didn't, you know, Motorola really had us uh, snookered, I guess. <laughs> um, wow. But we, we got the thing to work, and the, and the roamabout was, was relatively successful. Um, but, it, you know, that was really early in the days of, of Wi-Fi. I mean, it was pre-Wi-Fi because yeah. this is a different radio technology. Um, but we shipped a bunch of them, and they, they sort of worked. Uh, it was just too early for the market. I had fun doing it, though. <laughs> so, so what's interesting about that is that it's also another lesson out of that is that it's not always that the technology is even bad or anything like that. It's just sometimes you're just too early for the market. Oh, yeah, we were definitely too early. You yeah. know, you're just, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Oh, well, Dick was really good at that, sort of like in the late 1980s. Um, uh, about the same time, maybe a couple of years before, there's this company called Land City. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Uh, vaguely. They yeah. designed these weird things called cable modems. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we were we were cooperating with them, and we wrote all the networking code for the Land City cable modem and thought that was going to be a really big business, uh, which it wasn't until it was. And, of course, it became a big business <laughs> after DEC sort of started falling apart. So we, we, had, we had a cable modem running, running DECnet and TCP IP back in, uh, like, 19... 1988 to 1990, we thought the market was um, municipalities to run their uh, city network on the on this cable spectrum that the cable companies were forced to give them for their franchises. It was not looked at as a consumer technology. Oops. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty sad. <laughs> so always at the beginning of the market and never actually. Um, well, it did well in many computers, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, for a long time. Yes. For a long time. Things were, things were different in those days. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so, um, any, I mean, anything beyond that in terms of technology, I mean, the ISI stuff is really neat. The DS stuff is, the, 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 the DIS stuff is really cool because a lot of people, you know, this has been a point of differential between, uh, between ISIS and OSPF for many, many years, and a lot of people just don't understand the difference in this area as one of those things that really does make a big difference in the way the two protocols operate is this, the, the disk versus the, um, versus the designated router. Yeah. I, I, I think that's certainly true. I also think that the, um, the, the, the sort of like robustness properties of the protocol, keeping it really, really simple. Um, not loading it down with with features uh, that um, that complicated the protocol, that but probably in the real world would be used very infrequently. So another sort of example is uh, probably the cleverest thing in OSPF is that it has this partition repair capability, where if an area partitions, you it would know how to create a cut through path through the higher level uh, through layer two, level two in order to repair an area partition. So it turned out that, that A, that was never used, I don't think. Uh, no, B, no, complicated never, the protocol. Yeah. 
And C, architecturally, it forced you to migrate a whole bunch of layer one or uh, level one state into level two, so that the amount of state you had to keep in level two was actually additive as the number of areas grew, as opposed to ISIS, where the amount of, of, of state was uh, only grew with the number of um, one L2 router uh, transition points where you went up to, to, to level so, uh, OSPF had, you know, paid a fairly significant memory cost for a feature that um, wound up not being very important. Right. I remember there was a time in ISIS history where people were scrambling to try to figure out how to do partition repair in ISIS. And ultimately, the answer was, don't bother. I mean, it is in 10.589 from what I remember, but no one's ever deployed it that I know. Nobody's deployed it. And it was actually a little easier to, to do some of the stuff the way the protocol was designed. Uh, than with OSPF, but yeah. So, so another interesting question is, in ISIS, um, I always describe it as essentially the flooding domains are not so stubby, totally not so stubby areas in OSPF terms, but that's by default. Like you don't, you get externals, but you don't get, um, but you don't get, you just get a default route through the attached bit. Yep. And you don't carry like all of your internal stuff. How did that decision come about? Because that's an interesting. Well, I don't think that was a direct decision. I think, I think it was a consequence of trying to keep the protocol really simple. Okay. Right. And also a consequence of failure isolation in the sense of having the number of failure mechanisms that could break things be as few as possible. Right. So, you know, don't, don't put complexity in to deal with, with um, low probability failures that, wouldn't, that may not happen very often and the likelihood you would cause a different kind of failure when your mechanism didn't work very well uh, was higher than the actual um, failure probability of, of, of the underlying pathology you're trying to deal with. I mean... You know, one of the things Radia over the years has hammered, I think, for everything she's worked on, and the rest of us sort of follow the same kind of thing, which is if you start with something complicated, all that's going to happen is it's going to get more complicated, and you never have a chance to make it any simpler. If you start with something simple, you have the opportunity, if there's enough leverage, to maybe make it a little somewhat more complicated in order to get something. Uh, but if you don't start simple, you have no hope of ever having anything simple. Yeah, and that, and that's absolutely true. That's it. That's what happens all the time. That happens in network design. It happens in protocol design. That we start out with something that's really, really complex and think, oh, we'll simplify it later. No, you won't. You'll add more complexity later, pile upon pile, and you'll never get anywhere with it. Like I think that the use of external and internal metrics, there was that external bit, was actually pretty clever in ISIS, just making the metrics higher if it was redistributed in, um, just is a lot, lot simpler than having a separate way of carrying externals, which what most protocols end up doing. Right, right. Well, there, there, there was a little more history there uh, in the sense that uh, one of the things we never wound up doing uh, because people wound up tunneling inter-domain traffic rather than routing it through your yeah. domain mm -hmm. was by doing the metrics that way, it was relatively easy to inject um, ex 
routes to external destinations into the IGP um, and not get confused and wound up and have them wind up being cheaper than the internal routes. So um, we did think, I believe at the time, that it would be it might be a really nice feature to be able to inject routes from your EGP into the IGP for carrying traffic rather than tunneling it. Right. And that's a lot safer to do if you separate the metrics that way. Right. Yeah, and that was the whole synchronization thing with BGP for a long time that eventually just got turned off because you just couldn't carry the routes in the IGP that you needed to. Or that was the theory at the time, which I think was mostly more a matter of learning how to code SPF better, Dijkstra better, learning how to build better better processors and put them in routers. Um, like today, running 1,000 SPFs is just not that big of a deal. In those days, running 1,000 SPFs was... It was a big deal. Yeah, it was a very big deal. I mean, I remember working on routers and thinking, oh my, you know, if it takes more than a second to run SPF, I'm in trouble. Well, nowadays, if it takes more than 10 or 15 milliseconds to run SPF, I begin to wonder... <laughs> what have you done to your network? <laughs> yeah. You know. Well, one of, one of the clever things we did again, this is in terms of how we how we did Dijkstra is that uh we you know, there's a log n term in in standard Dijkstra um in terms of the the sort of the algorithm is written down in the textbooks as an e log n algorithm, right? Number of edges times the log of the number of nodes. Well, uh, what we figured out is that if if you if you did a pre-sort, um, you could actually reduce the the runtime to to, to linear and e. Uh, so we actually eliminated the log n term by keeping uh, the node list sorted. I don't know whether other people bothered to do that. It was there was a certain memory cost to it, but um, that also contributed, I think, a, a lot to. Uh, to, to, to how well it ran compared with some of the other implementations, uh, particularly on sparse networks where E, where the, the, where the e versus N is, is um, you know, is not out of whack. The, the, this would not be the case say, in a data center where you have much richer connectivity. It's not nearly as sparse. So E is, you know, E is actually the same order as N. Yeah. So every ISIS implementation I've looked at recently does um, sort on insertion yep. rather than sort on running SPF. So the sort's done once. Yep. And, and that makes the runtime of, of Dyke Street order E. Yeah, right. So that's how they're always done. In fact, it's quite confusing when you look at ISIS code. If you don't understand that, the first time you look at it, you're like, wait, I think it's supposed to sort before pulling the shortest. And there's no sort. Right. <laughs> Because right. it sorts done on insertion, so you just don't. It's just not in the algorithm. The well, that's conventional wisdom now, but I think it was a fairly. We thought it was a fairly nice insight. Twenty five, thirty years. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Certainly. Certainly. So I mean, Dijkstra's come a long way from being what a trivial little algorithm to uh, find. I don't remember what it was now, but it, it was a very like six bit algorithm or whatever it was when Dijkstra wrote it. So it's come a long, long way since then. So cool. So, um, Donald, anything else to ask before we wrap up? Yeah, so, so what would you do differently about the Edge's design now that you've looked back? If, if you could go back in time and redo it. Um, there are a couple things I think I would have done. Um, given the fact that there, there's a difficult trade-off between how big to make 
uh, areas and how to cut up your hierarchy in a way that matches both the way your network is designed and the administrative boundaries that cause people in different parts of organizations to want to have control over things. Um, so one of the reasons why people keep, there are two reasons why people keep their, their IGP instances fairly small. One is technical, but the more important one is organizational. So the technical reason was, uh, and you alluded to this a little bit, Russ, is that the computational and memory cost of having a very large IGP, people said, oh, don't put more than a thousand routers in or something like that. And, oh, it used to be 50 on the Cisco website. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, that's pretty much gone because the cost of memory is down and the, and the speed of the processors that are used for computing routing is so high. But the, the administrative boundary problem is a human problem to a great extent. And some of those boundaries haven't gotten all that much bigger, right? I mean, you know, usually a, an, a, somebody will have, you know, an organization for a site or an organization for a metro if you're a, if you're a, a service provider. And the, the consequence of those two things together sort of like made BGP sort of appear everywhere. And things got cut up into lots of ASs that didn't need to get cut up into lots of ASs. So if I were to do something in an IGP now, I would do two things. One is I would probably make it more than two levels. And second, I would assign more administrative control to the level crossing rather than making it purely a, a technical thing like, you know, the attached area thing, so that you could, um, you could do look aside for policy-based operations when you cross level boundaries. So you weren't forced to run an, uh, an, IG, an IGP as a single instance with no administrative boundaries anywhere inside it. If we had done those two things, I think you might find um, a multi-level uh, link state protocol being able to be deployed in, you know, in organizations as large as, say, all of AT&T or all of Comcast or all of, you know, a big enterprise um, and, and not have all the, what I would consider gratuitous complexity of, 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 of BGP sort of finding its way into everything. And, you know, BGP is a very, very big hammer that is really difficult to manage, frankly. Yeah. Um, well, and that's one of the reasons I'm kind of happy about the work that's going on in link state on data center fabrics and stuff like that is finding ways to make link state protocols scale better so that you don't have to use BGP. Um, right. you know. It's not just the technical scaling, it's the administrative scaling. You don't see that so much in data. You don't see the administrative problem so much in data centers. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, I think you're right that in data centers, it's just a matter of things like flooding groups and, uh, mapping the boundaries of the protocol into the failure domains that you already have in a data center. Yeah. Um, right. And also, again, dealing with the uh, being more efficient in the dense topologies than, than you know, the, the naive flooding method that, you know, is intellectually very nice, but, um, you know, you, you'd like not to have to configure flooding groups, for example. Right. Like that to be able to do automatic, some kind of automatic hierarchy. Which, by the way, is easy in today's data centers because of the the fact that they're close topologies. Right. It you know things like that wouldn't work if the world had gone toward jellyfish or some kind of expander graph topologies instead of close topologies in data centers. Yeah. 
toroids or something like that. Toroids would have been. Oh, toroids are another regular topology, so you just would do something a little different. Right. Yeah. But the right. alternative of expander graphs or jellyfish, you know, where the where the network grows in 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 ways that don't have, you know, easy characterization from a point of view of a routing protocol, th those would be more problematical. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. I think that's really good. Thanks for joining us on the uh, History of Networking, Dave. And uh, I guess I'll see you in Prague. I'll see you in Prague. Thanks for giving yeah. me the opportunity to talk about some of the early days. Um, yeah, no, it's really cool. It's great. It's great you know, having you. Us old guys, you know, we don't get to do very much news, so what we get to do is reminisce. <laughs> so can anybody find you anyplace? Are you just um, like LinkedIn or anything? Or uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, just look me up. Easy to find me. Uh, Dave Oran at Orandum.net. I run my own little consulting gig these days, and I also hang out at the uh, MIT Media Lab. Okay, cool. Donald, you're at uh, me, not you, Sharp. On Twitter. On Twitter. Look at I that. I don't do Twitter. I, I haven't memorized. I don't blame you. I don't blame you either. I never log into Twitter. Don't PM me on Twitter because I'm not, I don't, I don't answer. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. Um, and of course, I'm Russ, and you can find me at rule11.tech. You can find me at the Network Collective. Again, Dave, thanks for coming on, and we'll um, see you next time or see you at Prague. Thanks. Great. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Dave. All right. Having a wonderful time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.